Uh, last week, we were not here because a vast majority of our church were at a retreat. If you came here last week, I apologize. Joke was on you. If you stayed and waited, there was a Latino church that had a service later on. I hope you enjoyed that. But we enjoyed the retreat. For those who went on the retreat, did you all enjoy the weekend? <laughs> Wonderful time. Had a, had a harvest party yesterday that got intense. There was a three-legged race. The two Ajayi brothers won the first one, and people were upset. People were upset. Arguing like, no, nah, but they were supposed to go around. And I'm talking about the wives. See, look, it was the wives that were upset. I was looking around like, wow, I, you know, I didn't even know she was that aggressive, you know. I had to get on the mic and sing a worship song just to calm us down and bring us back to reality. So great time. Welcome to Solid Rock Church. We would go on retreats. We would argue over three-legged races. But we also try to honor the Lord. So because last week we didn't have a, a message here on Sunday, we're going to try to make up for it today. One passage, two schemes of the devil today. Two schemes of the devil. We are in a series called The Supernatural Lifeline where, we, where we're looking at Particularly, what are ways that the enemy, the devil, Satan, whatever, trips us up? And because there are many of them, and we can, in many ways, be so used to them that we don't even see them for what they are anymore. And so today we're going to look at one passage, Matthew 15, hopefully two schemes of the devil, if I can get through this. If not, children's ministry might be hurt. We might end long today. Or I'll just delay it till next week. All right, let me give you some context to Matthew 15 background. When I say context, I want to, I usually do messages like this in two ways. I give you, I want to explain what, what is being said contextually. There is a purpose for why the Bible was written and what it says and to the people that it was written to. So there is a context in which it was written. We don't just want to take verses and just apply them and say whatever they, no, there's a reason why it's written and why it's saying what it's saying, and there's a context. But then there's also a principle. So we can take what's written contextually and say, what does it mean? What's the problem? What's happening? What's going on? And then we can look at these things principally. And that's more when, how do we apply this? What, what do we take from this? Because we're obviously not in the scene with Jesus and the Pharisees. This is a couple thousand years ago. So we are responsible, I am responsible to try to take this scene contextually and figure out how does it apply to us principally so we'll break this down and look at both of those. So here's background context of Matthew 15 so you can understand what's happening. Jesus is in a back and forth convo with the Pharisees and scribes about a term called the tradition of the elders. Traditions of the elders were essentially ways to apply a command of God that are treated as authoritative as or more authoritative than the command of God. It's an application that you say, okay, I don't watch scary movies because the Bible says do not be conformed to the image of this world. Or be Sweet, but that's not what the passage is saying. 
There's no pastors that tell you don't watch scary movies. I'm not saying watch scary movies. I'm just saying there's no passage that says you can't watch scary movies. But the point is, if you elevate that and start teaching that as a command, then you are out of bounds. So this is what they would do, and it was called traditions of the elders. So our scene begins with the Pharisees and scribes questioning Jesus about why the disciples eat and don't wash their hands. For them, it made the disciples unclean. They were trying to apply God's law in the Old Testament, the law of Moses, and they had took it to mean if you eat and you didn't wash your hands first, you are ceremonially unclean, and that's a sin against God. And so they're asking Jesus, why are your disciples doing that and disregarding the, ch the tradition of the elders? But Jesus challenges their evaluation of what is unclean by pointing out that their application of the scripture is actually what's unclean. And by default, he reveals a much deeper issue and two schemes of the devil that trip us up. And by us, I just don't mean solid rock, but just believers, professing believers today. With that in mind, let's look at Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9. And reveal the first scheme of the devil. And I quote, the Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for your sake, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honored me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So let's look at this first a little bit more contextually. Jesus is challenging their application of the fourth commandment, honor your mother and father. And what he's talking about is a law, and the law is called Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. And what this law says, it's a law that these religious leaders made up, and the law is put into place by the religious leaders that basically says, if a son or a daughter, but usually a son, tells his mom and dad the money that I would give to help you out in your older age, I'm giving to the church, to the temple instead, which would be like the church. I'm giving to the synagogue instead of giving it to you. Now, there's no Old Testament command at all where God says that. Because in, in that day and age, when you were older, just like today, we put people in, in, in homes, right? We put them in, 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 in these living communities where they're living with people, 55 or older communities. Or we put them in nursing homes or whatever until they, but in this community, living with your parents until they, that was what you did. You didn't send them away. So what you did as a son, the people who raised you, 
And now you're earning a living. Now you're honoring your mother and father as an adult by giving some of them money, by providing for them. But these religious leaders said, if you say, no, you're giving it to the temple, to us, then you don't have to honor your mother and father. And Jesus is exposing this. They were disregarding the fourth commandment. They came up with an application that they made greater than the command of God. And Jesus is exposing this. Contextually, the Pharisees have made tradition of the elders, which is just their own application of laws, their definition of good and evil is greater than God's definition of good and evil. And Jesus is exposing this. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9, quoting from Isaiah. This is how seriously Jesus takes elevating things, laws that are not from God, equal to or above God. He says in verse 8 and 9, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Contextually, he has a problem with it. He's pushing back, saying, you're talking about washing hands. That's not the issue. The real problem is you all are taking your application and making it greater than God's word. And people are listening to what you teach rather than what God teaches, and thereby disobeying God. That's the context. Principally, here's the point Jesus is making. When you elevate things to be equal to or above what God has said in his word, you are honoring him with your lips and your heart is far from him. You are faith faking. Test the lying instead of testifying. Jesus says when you elevate laws that God doesn't elevate, you are leading people astray about what it means to follow God and what he wants people to do. And Jesus says you are ungodly for doing so. This is dangerous. And it's so common that many of us don't even recognize it. Many of us participate and agree with it. He said, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, doctrines are things that God commands, teaching as things that God commands the commandments of men. These are things that you want. It would be like me saying to you, if you are not in church every Sunday and not in a core group, you are not saved. There's no Bible passage that says that. But do you know how many churches do stuff like that? You know how many people take things from the Bible and elevate it and, and come at you like you're not doing this? Well, Jesus says, that's vain worship. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. How dare you add to the law of God and elevate things that God does not elevate? The commandments of men are literally actions of obedience that are being commanded as from God that are not from God. 
elevating the importance of something that God does not, does not deem important. And I've seen this in my Christian life. I've been a believer since what? A, a, a real believer since 1999. I made a profession of faith in 1990. I started really following the Lord in 1999. And I walked right into this. I didn't know what it was, but I saw it. Think about Jesus' statement. In vain do they worship me. In vain. I, don't, I, I could be wrong. I don't imagine anyone who worships Jesus in vain as going to make it to heaven with him. Could be wrong. Don't think I am. Think about these words. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, elevating things that God doesn't elevate. I first saw this when I came to, when I got saved and came to this church and heard about this doctrine called election. The doctrine of election. Election is a doctrine that teaches that God has chosen people before the foundation of the world to be saved. And the Bible teaches that. I don't disagree with that. The Bible does say that. Ephesians 1, Romans 9 through 11. Plenty of passages teach this. Acts 16. I can name a bunch. The Bible does say that. I'm not arguing with that. But what I would see happening was people who profess to be believers who have a different opinion, I would watch these two camps attack each other. And I was new, so I was just trying to figure this out. And because I'm from the street, I'm good with a good fight. Like, I'm from that. So <laughs> it would be, it wasn't what I was used to. It would be a couple of dudes arguing over. And this. I just wanted somebody to hit somebody before... I just used to watch, like, man, those, I, I'd be like, hey, those fighting words to me, bro, I don't know. I'm, you know, I was new, I was a new believer, I'm from where I'm from. Even though I still think that way from time to time, look, the Holy Spirit moved in, but Adam ain't move out, right? So, still me, but I'm growing. But I would watch this, people would fight, and it was, it was couched a couple different ways, free will versus predestination or Calvinists versus Arminians. And these people even had me thinking, you're not a Christian if you do not believe that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. If you say you chose God, then you're not a believer. I was questioning, I believed it. And one day I was like, why can't I find any verses that say that your eternal destination hinges on you rightly believing why you are saved via chosen or chose him. No, it's necessary to believe who saved you and how you're saved. Jesus, his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Now, I believe the doctrine of election is true. I'm not denying that. But what I was struggling with is why are we elevating it to a point where people's eternal destination is now connected to what you think about this issue? I can't find any verses that teach that. And I looked significantly. People have treated, the ele have elevated the doctrine of salvation to such a degree that people are thinking, I, I, on my YouTube feed, there are channels that pop up where they devote themselves to disproving Calvinists, exposing Arminians. Yet there's not a passage that says 
if you don't believe you were chosen or you, were, or you chose him, you're not going to make it. But I've watched this doctrine get elevated to such a degree that it's caused significant division in the church. I would go so far as to say many of what we call today denominations are the elevation of particular doctrines that some people think you have to do to be saved or to glorify God. And it's just like, oh, what do you do with the first Corinthians 12? We're the body of Christ. The arm and leg serve a different purpose, but it's all part of the same body. I've watched this salvific tradition of the elders destroy people. I cannot find in a credible Bible, and if I'm wrong, please show me, because I could be wrong, but I cannot find in all my years of study a credible Bible verse that says if you do not believe you were chosen by God or you chose him, that you will not make it. I mean, what did the thief on the cross believe? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus wasn't like, hey, look, fam. I appreciate you saying all that and all that. But um, how do you think you say, bro? Do you think you're saying that on your own, or did I choose you to say that before? The... I, I don't know. I'm still learning. Personally, I think them dudes should just duke it out. But that wouldn't honor the Lord either, so excuse me. When you talk like this, according to Jesus, if I'm applying this right, in vain do you worship me. You are honoring with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. Because you're teaching people, elevating doctrines that he doesn't elevate. Think about this statement, in vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Think about that, think about that statement when it comes to Revelation. And eschatology. When the Israel-Hamas conflict happened, it was like my, my YouTube feed got saved. Every video was popping up. The end times are near. You tell, click on the link. Brother, in Ezekiel 12, and, and, this, and it says this, and, then, and Gog and Magog, and, and then Russia's going to come down because Russia's Gog, and they're going to come down and do this, and, then, and all these prophecies are being fulfilled, and you got to stand with Israel now, brother, because the Lord is coming. And I was like, every video was the same. And after watching two or three of them, I was like, man, I could imitate all of them. <laughs> Think about this statement. There are people who are basing your eternal destination on whether you believe the rapture, or you support Israel as they believe Revelation describes. Yeah, yeah. This dude put this on, 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 on Facebook a week and a half ago. And I know this dude. A lot of followers on Facebook. Here's what he wrote. I just, I, well, I ain't gonna, let me read it first. Here's what he wrote. This is I'm verbatim. You cannot make this stuff up. Don't make me laugh. Here's what he said. If your pastor slash under shepherd, in quotation, is more interested and concerned in, quotations, preaching through a book of the Bible, i.e., reform slash Calvinist slash non-charismatic churches, end quotes, or preaching about your destiny, your blessing, your season, your haters, stepping in and putting your foot on the devil's neck, head, non-reform charismatic prosperity churches, right? So if they're interested in preaching this instead of Preaching about what's going on in Israel, 
they are either ill-equipped to feed you the whole counsel of God and therefore are unqualified to lead or they're cowards who are afraid to speak the truth or both. All caps, I said what I said. And you know what I said? So what? I guess I'm a coward, guys. I've been doing this for 15 years, but I just don't know what I'm doing. Listen, despite popular belief, there are no Bible passages that command us to have a particular end times position. There's none. If God wanted us to have a particular end times position, he would have made it clear. Revelation is a picture book, not a puzzle book. People be like, look, this is going to happen and he's coming back soon. Listen. On one level, you're right. These words were written 2,000 years ago. Of course he's coming back sooner than when they wrote the words. It's been 2,000 years. I'm much closer to dying than I was when I was 15 in terms of just the progression of life. The end times are near. Yeah, we've been hearing that for 2,000 years, fam. If you were alive when Hitler was alive, you best believe that most of them people thought he's an antichrist. And look, we still here. I don't know what the mark of the beast was back then. It's a computer chip that you, it's a, okay. Okay, I mean, that's important. You got to support Israel or else you're not a true Christian. It's like, listen, fam, in the Bible, there's two kinds of people in the New Testament. Those who were in the household of faith and those who are not. Jesus died for the Palestinians too. He died for Hamas too. They, not, they might not believe in him, but he didn't die just for a particular... So he died for those people too. And there are people who are getting saved in these, in these Muslim nations. Amen. People acting like if you don't think a certain way about Israel, you're not saved. But here's what gets me. This is what gets me. All this end times talk. Look at this. This is happening. The end times is coming back and all of this. If you really believe that, then why aren't you holier than like, if you really, I mean, if you really believe Jesus' return is imminent, despite the fact that Jesus said, no one but the Father knows when I'm coming back. Not the angels, not the Son. Only the Father. But apparently, many people on YouTube know it's any day now. If you genuinely believe that, then why aren't you holier? Why are you rebuking people online? Why aren't you more loving? Why aren't you godlier? If you really believe it's that close, man, you better be in sackcloth and ashes. It's time to be like them folks wearing dirty clothes, walking around holding signs up like the end of the world is near. If you really believe that, then what in the world are you doing on YouTube talking with all this toughness for? You should be like, hey, listen, I'm taking a break from YouTube. I think he's coming back any minute, and I need to be ready. But now let me make my fourth video about this today. You know what the real problem is? People care more about the end times than how they're doing in the end times. People care more about the end times than how they're doing in the end times. If you really, listen, if anybody in here was going on vacation, you're planning a vacation and you're looking forward to it. 
and you find out two days before your vacation that there are people that are determined, that have been watching your house and are determined to rob you for everything you have the, the, night, the first night that you leave. You're going to change how you do things. You're either going to not go on vacation and get a couple of pistols. Some of y'all got them already. I would too, but I got a criminal record. But if they change that, I'm going to be. My criminal record's old, y'all, just so y'all know. There's some newer people in here like, man, that dude, he just looks like he might be. I had this shirt for a long time, these jeans for a long time. Watch is newer, but we, we broke around here. Right? We ain't robbing nobody. But if you thought that, you would get a security system like no other. Like, I would not go on vacation. I would just, I would just arm up. I would get the most advanced security system, and I would, I would pr program it to dormant. Look like nothing's up until they walk in, and they break into the joint. Boom, 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 shh, quiet. Go upstairs, all of a sudden, the shutters come down. Boom, 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 boom. Lights come on. You're not leaving. I want all of that. I want them to panic, scream, and I want to watch it while I'm driving. <laughs> Hey, you came to the wrong house, my dude. You would take seriously if you thought this is going to happen on something much more, less significant than getting robbed, than Jesus coming back. Look, let me just say this. This is just me. You don't got to be like, you don't, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. You don't, I, I personally could care less when Jesus comes back. I don't care when Jesus comes back. What I care about is that I'm going back with him when he comes. That's all I care about. Amen. I don't care if it's in my lifetime or not. Me and my sons talk about this all the time. When you think he's coming back, we talk about this. People be showing, put, putting these videos of like this face in the clouds and me and my son be looking. I was like, nah, son, that ain't no, that ain't no Jesus. That's a Ninja Turtle, son. I don't know. We be looking like, I don't know, son. What you think? You think? We be looking. I'm telling you, we be doing, like, what you think? Poppy, what you think? I was like, man, I don't know. It looked like a man. It looked like a man eating a slice of pizza to me, but it could be a beard. Like a, I, don't, I don't care when he comes back. What I care about is that I'm going back with him. And I want to live in such a way that whether he comes back today or when I'm, I'm, that I'm, going, I'm going to be with him, that's what matters. But these people are elevating your eschatology, your end times position. And if you don't think this way about Israel, keep up the good work, fam. Keep in mind, Revelation 22, Jesus said, he said, I'm coming back. And he said this, you can look for yourself. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Jesus said, let the evildoer keep on doing evil. Keep doing what you do. Revelation 22. Let it, look at it. Let the evildoer keep on doing evil. Let the righteous keep doing righteous. When I come back, I'm bringing my reward with me to pay everybody back for what they've done. Jesus wasn't like, y'all better hurry up and come back. He was like, no, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. Because he's going to come back. And when he does, but that's what matters. These people are making these eschatological traditions of the elders, these end times. I said, I don't believe this. And I got people texting me, hey, what do you think about this? So you, I'm like, listen, fam, you're trying to honor the Lord. You love the Lord. It doesn't matter when he comes back. And it doesn't matter if this is happening. Israel's been fighting for a long time. They said the same thing in 1967 of the Six-Day War. They said the same thing in 1948 when Israel was... I'm not worried about what happens in Israel. I'm worried about what's happening right here. God will handle himself. There's not one verse that says Israel will be wiped out anyway. 
I can't find it. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Think about that statement. Think about that statement when it comes to gifts of the Spirit. Think about that statement when it comes to gifts of the Spirit. People elevate the gifts in such a way that it goes far beyond what the Bible is teaching. There is not a more frequently elevated phenomenon that rivals what God's word says than things like tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, healing, all those gifts. Despite the fact that they're only in one book in the New Testament that Paul was actually correcting them for using the gifts, misusing them contextually. When it comes to the work of the Spirit, it is the most misunderstood and misapplied doctrine in the Bible. And in my experience, people do not know the difference between what the Bible describes and what it prescribes. The Bible description is when the Bible is describing something that happened, some supernatural event. Prescription is when the Bible is commanding something to happen. And in my experience, people confuse the two. They make what the Bible describes a command and what it commands a description. I see this all over the place. Descriptions of what God does is like Joseph getting a vision from God. Jesus led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Jesus walking on water. The Bible is not prescribing. It's not commanding these things happen in the believer's life. It's describing things that did happen in people's lives. Well, Jesus was led by the Spirit to do this, so what about? Why are you using that verse? How come people don't want to be led by the Spirit in verses like Galatians 5? But if you are led by the Spirit, you were not under law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. So when you're led by the Spirit, it says you don't do these works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of rage, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why are people so eager to be led by the Spirit to do this? I don't hear people leaving churches or starting denominations on trying to be led by the Spirit like this. These be, are treated as descriptions. Things you might become, not things you're supposed to not do. But verses on describing the Spirit's work in the lives of people, those get elevated to commands. Like in Acts 8, 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, right? Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. I know people, I know denominations that have taken this story, what it's describing, and created a doctrine called baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you are not baptized in the Spirit, you're not even saved for some of these folks. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not even saved for some of these folks. Despite the fact that 1 Corinthians 12 said that tongues are a gift that some people get. They've elevated these manifestations of the Spirit so much that that's what they're driven by. And they act like this is what the Bible commands. And it's like, fam, all the verses you've shown are what the Bible describes. 
Don't show me what the Bible describes. Show me what it commands. Show me where it's telling me I'm supposed to do this. Not describing that this happened. Now don't get me wrong. We affirm what the Bible affirms. I know there's some people that don't believe the gifts of the Spirit exist. We're not like that. We don't affirm that. I know some people are what they call cessationists, that they end up with the age of the apostles. I don't see that nowhere in Scripture. We don't affirm that. We affirm what the Bible affirms. What we don't affirm is the way people emphasize it and elevate it. That we do not affirm. You can show me what the Bible describes. Show me what it commands. That's what's missing. People out here acting like the Bible doesn't say that Satan will deceive many by signs and wonders. All these signs and wonders chases. And don't realize, you know that people are deceived by Satan. Like the, the enemy can do those things, right? Remember the girl that Paul cast a demon out of in Acts 16? She was a fortune teller. which She made money, which means she was right about things she was saying that were going to happen. The enemy has supernatural works too. Not everything is the spirit. And if it doesn't produce the fruits of the spirit, even if it is the spirit, you should be concerned and not want to get near it. And I see this happen all over the place. Making people feel like they're less of a Christian because they don't manifest the spirit in certain ways. But they love the Lord, though. And then the people that do manifest the spirit, they ungodly in their actions. I don't care what tongue you speak in. I care what sin you resist. I don't care what, what, if you can heal. I care if you can hear. I don't care if you, can, you have dreams. Do you love people? Who cares about those things? People walking around with their chest out like they somebody. Man, I'll bust you in your chest. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be like that. I used to be like that. We used to call it open chest day. Mike, you know about that. It's open chest day. You walk down the hallway, nothing, and then somebody come up, boom, open chest day. And now you knew everybody's wearing their book bag all day on the front of their chest. I know some of y'all didn't grow up like that. I grew up like that. In fact, next Sunday is open chest day. It's all over. Listen, the theological term for the spirit is called pneumatology. Pneuma is the Greek word for the spirit. These pneumatological traditions of the elders are people leading people astray. You're leading people astray. And if that offends you, then be offended. But you're leading people astray. And in our church, we're going to say something about it. We're not elevating. We don't ignore these things, but we're not elevating these things. And we're not letting you elevate these things. And if you need to elevate these things, then you know what that means. We are churches trying to imitate Jesus. We're not trying to receive things from him. If he blesses us with things like that, don't get me wrong, we pray and ask for things. But that's not our emphasis, though. Sometimes you should just pray about, Lord, thank you for how amazing you are. And don't say nothing about what you need or want. I don't never see any of these type of folks wanting to be led by the Spirit to resist sin. I don't see it. And if I'm wrong, you can show me that I'm wrong, but I don't see it. Right now, my eyes are still decent. Listen, be careful what you elevate as a law of God or as from God. 
Because he says people who do that honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. This isn't me nitpicking. I picked multiple. I could give you more examples. I've seen these in my life, and I realize, like, wow, this is why solid rock, we don't do We don't elevate certain things. We just won't do it. This is why sometimes in the Q&A, I don't like giving application because I don't want you to take what I'm saying and then you think, well, I don't, oh, well, I don't really do that. But the spirit might convict you of something on your own. This is dangerous. It's a scheme of the devil. It makes you think your definition of good and evil is pleasing to God. And God says, in vain do they worship me. Be careful what you elevate as what God commands. Because often these things is what he describes. And he said, you're not genuine. He said that, not me. It is a scheme of the devil. Listen, the word of God has enough for us to do. We don't need to add more to it. Listen, let's just, can we, it's Sunday, right? Jesus broke it down and said, look, I'm going to just do this. I'm going to give y'all two commandments. That's it. Here go two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's all you got to do. Just do them two. That's all. I'm just going to give you two commandments. Just do those two. You're good. How many people do those two? Don't fear, man. Raise your hand if you do those two. If you believe you do those two all the time. How many attempt to even do those two all the time? How many remember I'm supposed to love the hook? <laughs> Cleveland. Thank you, Cleveland. That's the only person I believe back there, Cleveland. That's the only one I believe that actually attempts it. We just forget about it. We get offended. As soon as you're offended at somebody, you don't love them. As soon as you're offended, it's that quick. Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, when Peter was like, Lord, I don't want you to die. He said it because he loved the Lord and was trying to be like, and Peter said, get behind me, Satan. Even though, that, even though you mean well, that's a satanic thought. So if that's satanic, whew. 1 Peter 4, if the righteous are scarcely saved, man, what are we talking about? If you do not love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, then you're in sin. If you don't do that, then guess what? We are perpetually sinning all the time against God. That's why grace is amazing. Because there's never not a moment, double negative, intentional, for my English folks. There's never not a moment where you're not worthy of going to hell. And here you are. God still blesses you. You pray, you read, you sense his spirit. Some of us do have spiritual gifts. All those things. Jesus made it simple. We have too much to do as is. We don't need to add to it. That's why Jesus said, listen, Matthew 11, come to me, all you are heavy burden. For my yoke is light. He said, let me take the burden off of you. Because these Pharisees, and these, they got you doing too much. We can't even do the basics. So we're definitely not going to add to that with things that God is not commanding you to do. Second scheme of the devil. This one is actually more, more widespread. 
This was more appropriate to who we are. All of this is, but this one is more. All right, so Jesus uses a parable, beginning in verse 10 through 20. Jesus uses the parable to help people understand. So contextually, he's still helping them understand what it means to be clean and unclean. He's still in that. Jesus is contextually. He knows that we'll figure it out principally later. But contextually, he's still dealing with this issue of clean and unclean and challenging and pushing back on that. But he exposes a deeper scheme of the devil, beginning in verse 10. Here's what he says. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand, right? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So contextually, Jesus is still talking about the distinction from being ceremonially unclean to eternally unclean. That's what he's still distinguishing. He's helping them understand the deeper issue. Jesus did not come because people have unclean hands and are not washing them. He came because we have unclean hearts and cannot wash them. That's not why he came. And if you don't see that, that the issue is what's going on internally instead of externally, then the gospel doesn't make sense. Because if the problem, if I'm, my actions and attitude are the result of something happen, happening to me rather than something happening in me, then my actions are the cause of someone else and not my own. So the gospel doesn't, why well, do I need to repent and believe what? Like, I'm not a bad person. Like, they made me angry. They said this thing to me, and that was why I acted that way. They offended me, and so I got mad. And that's, you know, anyone would do that. You don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not about Jesus came to stop people from sinning against you. The gospel is Jesus came to, to help you stop sinning against him. If the problem is it's always something happening in, to me rather than in me, I don't need Jesus then. If people stop sinning against me, then I won't sin back. That's why people don't understand the gospel. Because they think it's about, they don't realize, oh, wow, when I sin, it's because it was in me already. <laughs> Jesus crushes the idea of that in, one, in verse 11. He said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. The Greek word koinu, defile, it means to impure, declare ritually unclean. Uh, to make unclean, to profane, to be impure, to desecrate, regard as defiled. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's what he's saying. This, for all purposes, defiled and being unclean means to be sinful. That's what Jesus is getting at. This is what he's saying. External circumstances don't make a person sinful. Internal desires do. This is what he's communicating. Internal circumstance, external, are not the reason why sin happens. It's what's in you that came out. Contextually, it's about clean and unclean before God. Eating with unclean hands was the circumstance. But the uncleanness that was external was not the problem to God. That's not the issue. 
Putting something in your mouth with dirty hands is not the problem. The problem is we have dirty hearts. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Contextually, not washing hands before eating to God is not the reason why a person is unclean slash does sinful things. So how do we apply this principally? Here's the principle. Circumstances don't make you sin. Circumstances reveal your sinfulness. They don't make you sin. Biblically speaking, you can't say, you make me so angry. It's not true. It's a scheme of the devil. Circumstances don't make you sin. They reveal your sinfulness. They reveal what was already in your heart. And here's the scheme of the devil. He switches it and tells us it's the circumstance that made you sin. It's their fault, not yours. You would not have done this. You would not have said this. You would not have watched this if this didn't happen, if you weren't tired or sick, if they had just been kind to you. So fundamentally speaking, what, what we're told is this by the enemy. Hey, listen, you do not have to honor the Lord in your response if people sin against you. That's the scheme of the devil. It's their fault. I'm reacting this way because it's their fault. And because God is sovereign and he's control everything, he's not changing it, then it's his fault. I know people who are offended at God because he didn't, he could do something but didn't do it yet at least. And now somehow it's God's fault. As if God has anything to prove to us. We get this from Genesis 3. The scheme of the devil, this, 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 oh, this, uh, circumstances make you sin. It's, it's, it's blame. It's 100% blame. Remember Genesis 3, 11 through 13? Remember I said we weren't going back to Genesis 3? I'm going to repent after this series is over. Because we might stop in one or two more times. But here, look, verse 11. He said, this is after they eat the fruit and then they hear him coming and they put clothes on themselves and they're hiding, right? Here's what he says. Verse 11. Who said, who told you? That you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man, this is Adam, here's what he said. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now we've covered this before in the, in the biblical supernatural storyline. They should have just both said, we just disobeyed you, Lord, please forgive us. Have mercy on us, we disobeyed you. We disobeyed you. But Adam blamed God and Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. But Eve didn't sin because of the serpent. The serpent tempted her, but what was in her heart caused her to sin. Look at Genesis 3, 6. Y'all know this one well, right? We spent a long time in this. So when the woman, this is what made her sin. Look, after, after, the, after, the, after Satan told her, man, you won't surely die. There's no consequences for your, sin, your actions. He says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, Satan didn't say that to her. He didn't say, man, aren't you hungry? Look at that fruit. That joint is crazy. Look how it glistens in the sunlight. You know you want to bite. Remember, he told Jesus, turn these stones to bread. He didn't say that to the woman. He just said, you won't, there's no consequences if you do it. You'll actually be like God, knowing good and evil. So she's saying, the tree is good for food. It's a delight to the eyes. 
and the tree was desired to make one wise. That's the only thing that Satan said that she sang to herself. So she took of its fruit and ate. That's why she ate, because he revealed what was in her heart. It was already there. Apparently, she'd already been looking at the fruit. Probably wondering, like, man, why can't we bite from that one? Maybe. This is consistent with what James teaches. James 1, 14 and 15. Remember this? Seed Consider, justify, agree, act. Remember this? James 1, 14. But each person is tempted when he is lower than enticed by his own desire. Not what somebody else said or did. By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown up, it brings forth death. So temptation makes you consider. You start to justify it. You agree that you should do it, and then you act. And that's how people fall into sin. Every time we sin, it's that quick. It's a quick process. James 4, 1 and 2. Listen to this one. Here's a fun fact. For all, all you people who have conflict with other people, couples, listen to what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Him, her. Listen to what God said. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder? You come? No, she said, no, according to God, your passions, your desires are at war with you. Maybe you wanted her to treat you a certain way, or you wanted him to respond this way, and all of that. And when they didn't, you felt like, I'm going in, I'm sinning. And in your mind, it's them. In God's mind, it's you. Your anger is because you're, you're not getting the passions or desires, things that you want to happen that are not happening. They're of your heart. That's why, this is, that's why you sin. I'm not saying it's not challenging when someone is sinning against you. That's not what we're saying. But the real reason why we sin is because we're just not getting our way. At least according to God, I tend to believe he's right. Eternal circumstances don't make us sin. They reveal we're sinful. Because if circumstances, and if circumstances by themselves can make us sin, then we don't have self-control, which is the fundamental fruit of the spirit. God says, no, I've given you my spirit. You can resist sin. I know there have been plenty of times where, you know, I don't know how many of you have been, like, like, pulled over by a cop who's just, like, really on one. Now, we got some good police. I would love to get pulled over by Ricardo. We laugh and joke. I know you're not giving me a ticket, right? <laughs> you know. If he said, man, I got to, I'm using you in a sermon illustration then, man. That's my power. I'm talking about you in front of the church. I'd love to get pulled over by him. But there are times you get pulled over and the cop is on one. Flashing the light in your face. It's nighttime. The other cop comes this way. I get it. They got to be safe. But they don't got to be rude. And you sit there and you just... I ain't going to say nothing. I'm not making the evening news for this. We all have to restrain ourselves. Your boss berates you. How many of you be like, man, say it again. You ain't doing that. And if you do, you'll be like this. All right, what are you doing? Well, I'm sending my job to monster.com, my application. <laughs> hoping that this hair, I got a friend who's a hair hunter who, you're just not doing it, right? You know how to be restrained. We don't sin against people just because they sin against us. That's not how it goes. Jesus says, no, listen, I put my spirit in you so you can be like me. 
First Peter 2, when they reviled him, he didn't revile in return. So he says, do the same. You're trying to be like Jesus. Didn't say it was easy, but it was possible because the spirit is in you. You do not sin because people do things to you. You sin because there are things in you. Why is this a good scheme of the devil? This is one of his strongest schemes among Christians. Why is this a good scheme? Because we don't have to change anything if it's not our fault. I don't have to change anything. It's not our fault. You can't just talk to me any old kind of way. What if the Lord sent them to do that so he could show you who you are? There are times I think the Lord is showing me who I am by my response. But saying, ah, look what came out. That's in you. Go after it. Look at this thought. That's in you. Go after it. It's a good scheme of the devil because if it's not my fault, then I don't have to work on anything. And there are more Christians who have been immature for a long time. How you got the spirit of God living in you and you still got the same struggle? Now, some of us are going to have struggles for life. We get that part. But some struggles are like, man, this is really an issue still? Like, some stuff is harder. It's more connected, but some stuff is like, dang, bro, this is like basic principles of the oracles of God type stuff. Like, why are you so offended that they said that? Just keep moving. I know people who get offended at things. It's like, man, they weren't even talking about you. They didn't even apply. You know what I mean? I've sat in sermons before and been like, oh, this is a good message, but it doesn't really apply to where I'm at in my life. I'm not offended at the dude for going like the people that it applies to. It's like, all right, this, I mean, this is, this is one. I can learn from it, but it might not be directly my issue. Okay. Easily offended, easily irritated. These are things that you let go, you go after. There are deeper issues we got to fight. The enemy's working. This is a good scheme of the devil because you begin to think that God doesn't care that much about your sin because you've been sinned against. I've talked to people who think that, you know, their sin isn't as significant to God as they're being sinned against. And it's like, I'm out. Flag on the play. I ain't throwing this joint. This is my thought. Listen, God does care about your sin even though you've been sinned against. And God is not thinking, hey, they really hurt you. So go ahead and get them back a little bit. That's not how the Lord works. He's like, listen, I've forgiven you for sin way more than you've been sinned against. So imitate me because I've forgiven you for way worse than what they did. Why is this a good scheme of the devil? Because it, make it makes us focus on what's happening to us rather than what's happening in us. You do not sin because someone offended you. You sin because of what was in your heart already. That circumstance revealed it. That you have a, you think, I can be nice to you as long as you don't say certain things to me. I have a right to sin against you if you sin against me. And we just don't. God will never say, that was crazy what happened to you. He's not going to be like, my bad for letting them say that or do that. He's not going to say that. He's going to be like, I let this happen so that you could work through it and grow. If you train yourself to see this, you'll be ahead of the curve when it comes to maturity. 
But if you don't realize that you sin and why you sin is because it's in your heart and all it took was this situation to bring it out, you'll be immature forever. I promise you, you will be immature forever. This is one of those areas that you have to grasp this. If you don't, you will be immature forever, making excuses for why you say and do what you do. I'm not saying that, listen, I'm a strong dude. I can handle a lot, but I've been hurt, lied about, all this stuff. I've trusted people that have betrayed me, all of it. But who hasn't? Let's be clear. Trauma is the norm. It's not the exception. You are not special because you've gone through some traumatic moments. And I'm not minimizing. I've been a pastor here 15 years and have sat and cried with people in their traumas. I got my own traumas. But you are not special because you've gone through something tough. In fact, Jesus chose trauma to bring us to our redemption. The Bible is filled with nothing but traumatic situations happening to people that love God and that God loves. I'm sorry, but your trauma is not that unique. It is the norm, not the exception. And our responsibility when we go through these things is to figure out how do I honor the Lord even though I'm hurting? Not who can I be offended at as the cause of my hurt? These are schemes of the devil that make you think that. A scheme to reveal you unclean. Here's a scheme of the devil. Your kids are cutting up, and so you get angry at them because they don't listen. It's they, they, if they would just stop, I wouldn't yell at them. But here's the uncleanness coming out. God's revealing that you think you have the right to sit in anger when your kids don't listen to you. You do not. And each time you do that and let that go, and if you don't ask for forgiveness, your kids will grow up, and they'll question the faith that they have because they'll see the hypocrisy in you. It's a scheme. Oh, look, they, they need to stop. If they just listen, you don't listen to God that well. Sometimes we want our kids to listen to God better than we do. Here's a scheme. You're offended because someone said or did something to you to hurt your feelings. But here's what's unclean. Here's what God's revealing. You believe that bitterness and resentment is allowed because you've been sinned against. And it's not. It's not. And don't get me wrong, it's a temptation. I felt it. You felt it. I've offended some of you. You've offended me, but we keep moving. Siblings offend each other. Spouses offend each other, but we keep moving. We don't have the right to sin because we've been sinned against. You just don't. And if that's a tough word to grasp, I don't know how to help you. Because it's not a suggestion. It is a command in multiple passages in the New Testament. To be like Jesus is to overlook offenses, to learn how to persevere and endure when we're hurt and offended. What I'm about to say is a different sermon, but let me say this. The way out of these things, this is our problem. We're always trying to change how we feel. We want to change what we're in or how we feel. You can't always do that. Sometimes the pain lasts longer than you want it to. Sometimes the betrayal was deeper than you imagined. The issue is not how can I stop feeling this way because when that becomes the issue, you'll do anything. You'll drink, you'll smoke, you'll sin, you'll do whatever to make you feel different. That's not the way out. The way out is when you're depressed, the way out is not how do I stop being depressed. 
It's how do I honor you, Lord, while I feel this way? That's the way out. You don't know if how long it's going to last for you. Everybody's going through something tough. You're not the only one. And you don't know how long it's going to last. So the issue is, all right, Lord, how do I honor you while this is happening? Because right now I can't change how I feel. And I can't change. I can't make the issue stop. But I can try to honor you in the midst of it. That's the way out. The scheme, you bringing up your dissatisfaction to others because you feel that the situation is not right. Unclean, God's revealing that you're complaining because you think you deserve more than what you have. We literally treat God like he owes us something. Like he owes me a suffer-free life. We don't ever think like, man, God, I wish you didn't let Jesus suffer for me. We don't never be offended at that. We think God owes us a suffer-free life, and it's like, well, if the goal is to be like Jesus, and my responsibility, Ephesians 5, 1, be imitators of God, 1 Peter 2, imitate the lamb, Romans 8, 29, we're being conformed to the image of his son. If that's actually true, then I have to look at everything that Jesus did. People want to be conformed to the supernatural stuff he did, but not the suffering. He uses that to teach us to persevere. I said this to my core group on Wednesday night. Best core group this side of Mississippi. <laughs> and I said to my core group, I said, listen, I hope you know that God uses suffering to show us that we actually do believe in him. When you, whether it's your own sin or someone sinned against you and you're suffering, when you still trust the Lord through that, that's God showing you your faith is real. We think like, man, he's mad at us. And he's like, nah, I'm proving to you that this is true for you. Because there are people who walk away from the faith for far less offended because God didn't change the circumstances and didn't realize, no, I'm trying to change you. As, as I'm using the circumstances to change you. God could peace be still the wind all day. Remember Matthew 8? They was like, Jesus, wake up. We, what, you sleeping and we're going to die. He was like, I just fed 12,000 people with some bread and fish. They didn't have all you could eat back then. And you worried about this? Did you not understand what just happened? You're not dying, you with me. He doesn't, he could have peace. But then in Matthew 14, he told Peter, hey, come, get out the boat and walk to me. And it said when Peter saw the winds and the waves, he was afraid. Why didn't Jesus peace be still the wind for Peter? Like he did in Matthew 8, he could have said peace be still so Peter wouldn't be afraid. Why didn't he peace be still the wind? You know why? Because Peter was supposed to remember, oh, I'm standing with Jesus in the midst of the winds. I got out the boat and walked to Jesus, and I'm standing with him in the midst of the winds. Who cares about them? He's holding me up. The winds and the waves are supposed to remind us that we're standing with him in the midst of them. And it's not Jesus existentially. Jesus is in the church. Jesus never said, when you're burdened, I will be with you alone. He said, bear one another's burdens. He works through his people. But we act like, well, I got to go before the Lord and do this myself. It's like, you don't know how to do it. Many of us don't know how to do it. We do it with the Lord works through his people. 
These are all good schemes of the devil. He wants you to think the eternal circumstances are why you sin and ignore that they're just revealing your sinfulness. He wants you to elevate doctrines and put pressure on yourself and other people. Got people doubting themselves because they don't, they, they don't know if they, they, they don't have the end times position, studying eschatology, asking all these questions like, what should I believe? Just believe he's coming back. And you need to be ready. Maturity is not connected to your eschatological position or what you think about Revelation. It's not connected to that. It's helpful to try to understand these things, but it's not connected. You don't elevate doctrines. Maturity is not connected to supernatural spiritual gifts. I know people that speak in tongues that I think are going to hell because their life doesn't speak righteousness. That stuff doesn't matter. They're helpful. They can assist faith, but they're not the measure of it. These are schemes of the devil. So how do we fight against this? How do we fight against schemes of the devil? That will be what we focus on next Sunday. That's next Sunday's focus. How do we push back against these? Let's pray. Father, two schemes, one passage. I just ask, Lord, as I always ask you, that where it needs to be applied in people's lives, that you would put it there. There are people in this room watching online or will listen later whom you love and whom love you that are either doing some of these things or going through it. And I just pray, Lord, that you would speak with them, help them to see, but not just you. Help them to trust others in their midst that you, you told Saul, why are you persecuting me, even though you had ascended months ago. And Paul said, what do you mean, Lord? He said, it is Jesus, you're persecuting me because you connected yourself to the people that believed in you that Paul was persecuting. We are not called the body of Christ as a figurative statement, but an eternal reality. So, Father, help us to learn how to, in our core groups, I love what we did at the retreat. Thank you for that. Because many of us talked with, opened up with people that we don't normally talk to on a Sunday or during the week. And Lord, as you told me to tell them on, at that retreat that don't make what happened here an event, but make it the beginning or the continuation of deeper fellowship. I say that again in front of all of us, those who were not at the retreat. That we are not about moments and events and cool slogans and sermons and adding to your word, chasing manifestations of the spirit or ignoring them. We're not trying to act like ours. We're more mature than what we are. Lord, I'm a wicked, evil man. I need you. And I need you to show me who I am so that I can honor you. Honoring you is more important than being impressive in front of anyone. And may all of us, Lord, you, don't, you know us who we really are. You don't need any of us. But you love all of us. Lord, may we believe what your word says so that we can show that we love you for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, thank you. Man, I'm starting to feel like JP after leading worship. Man, get a little applause.
I don't know how JP, I don't know why JP likes leading worship all the time. That, that applause, man. I'm, well, in I addition to, to the applause, we do have a few questions. Yeah. Um, JP, I'm leading worship next Sunday, bro. Mm. I don't know if that's the Lord, brother. Yeah. <laughs> hey, the Lord yeah. likes faith. It's faith. I'm <laughs> acting on faith. Um, you mentioned that sometimes God can use the devil's temptation to show us what's in us. Yeah. How do we go after evil desires in us? What's the biblical approach? So what's the biblical approach to going after evil desires in us? All next week. The whole sermon next week is devoted to, we've been talking about a lot of schemes. We need to, let's talk about how we push back. What does that look like? I want to wait. That's a whole sermon. All next week we're going to talk about how do we go after this? How do we push back? Great question. And I'm glad someone asked that because that means you care. It matters to you. I'm glad it does. But next week, we're going in. Um, a couple of questions may fall into that category. Sure. Just to warn those who are listening, uh, but I'll ask the questions anyway. Um, is it possible for our circumstances to shape the sin struggles of our life, or is it, our, is it singularly, is our sin singularly a reflection of our heart's desires? That's a really good question. And the Bible just is not clear on that. But I would say, so if you think about, wow, this is a separate sermon, but all right. If you think about, like, Satan tempting Jesus, right? Think of the three temptations that Jesus faced, all right? So the first one was food, right? He was hungry. It was food. That was something Jesus needed, right? The next one was, uh, depending on which one, Luke or Matthew, but then you got one where they put Jesus on the t top of the temple, like jump off, right? Jump off and the angels will protect you. He's using the Bible, a misapplication of the Bible to tempt Jesus to sin. Then you have the next one, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, right? And that's what Jesus wanted. Jesus came back to get all the kingdoms of the world in. So you get Satan tempting Jesus with something he needed to eat, something he wanted the kingdoms of the world, and using the Bible, something he trusted and believed in. All right? Those are three ways that the enemy goes after us as well. But that's a separate sermon. We'll get to that. Um, but I'll say um, I think that it, I think it's a combination of these things. I don't think I think Jesus wasn't tempted by anything he had done previously because he, he hadn't sinned. But we are. We're often tempted to sin by ways that we've already given in to sin. We've already given in to certain sins. And so we're tempted to do those things again. Because to some degree, there's pleasure in some sin. There's pleasure in a lot of sins. If you're, coming, if you're in the stuck group that we meet on Saturday, we're going to cover all this. Stuck is covering all this. There's a reason, there are reasons why we're stuck. And pleasure is one of them. And so I think, the, I think we're tempted by things that we've done that we've benefited from and then things that are in our hearts that we would be willing to do. If the right pressure is put on us, we do them. That's what I think is happening. So... There's more to be said, but I know what's coming sermon-wise, and I don't want to say a lot of it in the, in the Q&A right now. Okay. Um, Thank you. Excuse me. If we address <coughs> someone sinning against us and that conversation turns into an argument, is it simple to address the simple response of someone to me when I've been addressing their sin towards me. No, not at all. Not at all. I think I, 
So with stuff like this, it requires self-control, right? Most people. Some people, if you struggle with fear of man, this isn't a big deal to you because you're not going to say nothing in the moment anyway. You're going to wait for like a year or two and then bring it up, right? You struggle with fear of man, you ain't saying nothing. You're just going to take it and now fight through bitterness for six months. But if you're someone like me, I'm ready to talk to you as soon as you take a breath. So, so it, 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 then it becomes an issue of self-control because I think we should address like people being angry. But two things we should always keep in mind, timing, timing of when you address it and what you hope to come out of it, okay? Timing. I wouldn't tell a person who's angry at you and sinning against you right there that they're sinning against you because they're already in a sinful mode and they're not going to hear it. They're going to just get angry and be defensive and then blame it back on you. And then you're going to fight back and then you're screaming and then you dropping F-bombs. They dropping F-bombs and then everybody's like, Dad, I didn't know. And then you blaming them and then they blaming you. Then you meet with me and I'm like, it's both of y'all wrong. <laughs> right? All of that, right? I get it. I, do, I have done all of that, right? But the, so the timing is important. Sometimes let things cool off. Make sure you're cooled off first and foremost. Because if you bring it up and you're angry, I mean, what good is that going to do? What fruit of the spirit is that, right? So, so timing, and then I think what you hope to come out of it, I think many of us, especially in deep interpersonal relationships like, like marriage or parenting, and the reason why I highlight those is because those are more covenantal relationships. Like your siblings aren't a cup. Like you can grow apart from your siblings and not see them and become holiday. Like I love my brother, but I don't only see him on holidays for the most part. We text each other. We'll joke around with each other throughout the year. You know, my mom's kind of like, call your brother, call your brother. You know, all that. And, and she's right. But it's like we don't have that type of relationship, right? And so, but it's, but it's not. We, we bang. When we see each other, we dap, we laugh, we got jokes, we'll text each other, little uh, Instagram, all that stuff, right? We do that. But, like, I don't talk to him all the time. But my wife and kids, like, I'm, I'm, I live with these people, right? There's a deep interpersonal. So in those kinds of relationships, it requires a different level of timing and what you hope to get out of it. Because in all seriousness, I don't care what anybody tells you, you cannot change your spouse, your children, none of it. If they love the Lord and they're trying to honor the Lord, then that's what but you cannot change them. Mm -hmm. You can, and you're not the Holy Spirit. There are times, man, I, sometimes you just get offended and you want people to change, but, but here's the question, though. Why do you want them to change, though? Yeah. Do you want them to change because they're dishonoring God or because they're annoying you? And sometimes I think the Lord doesn't let people that we want to change change because our motive is really so they can stop messing with us. Mm -hmm. Or we think that we're sinning because they're doing this, and the Lord might be like, nah, I'm going to wait until you don't sin when they do that. And then I'll work on them. You know? So I just think timing is crucial. And just, I think we have to be honest and say, listen, I'm going to share this. First of all, I think we need to train ourselves to be like, hey, I really want to see people honor the Lord. Right. And my motive for sharing it, and me and Mike, because we're pastors, we have the luxury of having sown to thinking like that. The vast majority of my correction is because I want people to honor the Lord. It's not because you've offended me. We just have, we just have, that's how we, I don't, I don't have to, it's mostly because, most of you don't offend me for real. When I'm meeting with you, it's like to help you honor the Lord. But then there are times when, okay, if I, depending on the situation, how deep it is, yeah, you might be more passionate. You might be more like, well, if it's more serious, you're like, bro, what are you doing right now? 
All those things matter. So I think when we're close to people, we think like our words or our attitudes will change them, and they just don't. And then we get disheartened. It's like, no, the Lord is, unless you don't have confidence in the grace of God in this person, then you have to be patient that you bring these things up in a good timing. Sometimes, and there's some relationships you might have to just write it out and give it to them. I know people who are just, they just can't handle correction. They just, no matter, you whisper's too loud. You just, it's always, you, whatever. When I was a kid, we used to say, I'm rubber, you're glue. Actually, I ain't say that because it was bamified to me. But I mean, but people used to say, I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off to me and sticks to you. I know some grown-ups who act like that. And so it's like, well, I did this. Well, you, you ever share somebody? Y'all know this, you're in a conflict. You share, like, you bring some up. Well, yeah, you do it too. Who cares? Do you do what's being said, though? The Lord is not like, well, because they do stuff too, that then what they said doesn't matter. No, because if that's the case, then nobody can correct anybody. Right. No, it's not how. So I think when, we, when we're dealing with interpersonal relationships or issues of like, relationships of, of authority structures, you have to have good timing, and I think you have to just say these things, not because they better change, but in hopes that they will see what you're saying and you work together for help, for help them change. And most of us, if we're honest, we just want people to stop sinning against us so that we don't sin back. And it's like, mm, the Lord might not do that. He just might not do that. And often, he, if he does it, it takes a long time to see it. He doesn't do it. And you get discouraged. And it's like, man, maybe the Lord is changing me. Maybe he wants me to learn how to be patient. Maybe he wants to remind me that my passion is at war in me, and I'm offended at their sin. And I'm, and I'm holding their sin against them instead of thinking, man, Lord, I'm just dishonoring you. I, this is, the Bible doesn't say this, so I'm not adding this to you that you should do. But I think every genuine Christian should want to get to a point where you physically, literally weep of your own sin mm -hmm. on a consistent basis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you should get to the point where your own sin causes you to weep because you recognize how good God has been to you. And you want to, and you know that you're not your your obedience doesn't doesn't even it's not even close to the goodness that you've experienced. I think that should be a goal of it. The Bible doesn't say it, but I think that should be a goal of every believer. Because then at least you understand, wow, my sin against the Lord. But many of us have a low view of His holiness and a high view of our righteousness. Yeah. We just have a low view. We just think God doesn't care if we sin, and we just keep staying in these patterns and habits. And they don't change and then blame other people for bringing them up and all that. And then it's just, it's just a cycle. And the enemy's just sitting there like, well done. Well done. Well done. That's why I love screw tape letters. Yeah, just when he, when, he, when, he, when he was going to see his mom, it was like, hey, remind him of the stuff she said years ago. Put that vision in his mind so he's irritated the minute he hears her voice. I think the enemy works like that. I think C.S. Lewis was on to something. I think that was not inspired like the scriptures are, but I think he was, that was on, he was on to something. I think that happens to a lot of us. That means you think that Warren's group's uh, that's display why. was inspired Yeah, that's well, his, right? it was inspired. That's For those of you who weren't at the retreat, Warren's, Warren's group did a skit that scared all of us. <laughs> his mom was incredible. She was screw tape letters in the flesh. We loved it. It was fantastic. He was one of the groups that won. But there's, I think there's a reality to that, bro. And I think, I think some of us... Some of us want people to change so they stop bothering us. We don't really care if they honor the Lord or not. And I think, and I think sometimes the Lord is not going to answer that prayer because your motive. What, what did James 4 say? 
you want and you cannot have, so you, you, so you white, you murder. I think you want people to change so that they don't bother you, but you don't care if they dishonor the Lord. Yeah. And I think he wants us to care that people are dishonoring him. And so, but anyway, I can't prove it. What do I know? Shooting from half court. See if I'm right when I get to heaven. All right. Uh, this question is, are there examples in Scripture that show us how to comfort ourselves when we are hurt by others' sin against us instead of taking the shortcut of using retaliation to comfort us in our pain? Yeah, plenty. There's plenty of verses <laughs> to talk about that. I mean, yeah, where do we start? I mean, James 1, 2 through 4. Like he, yeah, actually, you know what? This will be next week. Never mind. This is going to be in, because the things that the Bible says, the Bible tells us how to do this all the time. We get stuck in how we feel. Like he, because we're trying to change how we feel or we're trying to change what's happening. And we're not looking at the things that the Bible says. So like James 1, 2 through 4, count it joy, right? When you experience trials of various kinds, that covers a lot of stuff. And he says, why do you count it joy? Because you're experiencing trial? No, he says, because you know that God is teaching you how to endure. Mm -hmm. Right? There's a purpose for these trials you're going through. It's not because God, we, we're so caught up on God being angry at us because we honestly believe that we shouldn't have any real issues. We just have a high view of ourselves that we don't, you know, we all deserve God's wrath. We live in his grace, but as soon as it, something that looks like wrath is coming, and let's be clear, so, I mean, I, even getting sick, people like, I just, hey, listen, man, I get it. Science, for all the science is good at, for all the things they boast, they can't kill the carbon cold, man, listen. We're still watching movies like Elysium, they'd be like, dad, you can just get in a tube one day and then have all your, you can't even kill the common cold. This has been going on for however long you think people have been alive, right? So. I just think we get offended at even getting a cold. It's like, listen, let a cold or a flu or COVID just remind you that you're going to a place where these things don't exist. Instead of complaining about how you feel, complain about where you're going. When I get sick, I'm just like, my son sometimes will be sick. Like my, they'll be like, Bobby, can I, I, I haven't hugged you in a while. I'm like, man, give me a hug. I don't care if I get sick. I'll hug and kiss him. Then I get sick, and I'm like, dang, I shouldn't have prayed or hugged him like that. Though. I could have <laughs> just said, man, I love you, son. But no, but it's like, listen. Like, when I get and don't get me wrong, Lord, I'm not saying this so I can get really sick. Well, don't do that, Lord, please. But no, I got to say that sometimes because they'll be like, hey, you taught it. You know I mean? But sometimes it's just like, Lord, man, I hate being sick. I hate when my kids are sick. I think I hate that worse, seeing my boys sick. I hate it worse. I hate it way worse than what I'm sick. But it's like, I'm, but you know what, though? I know I'm going to a place where I'm going to be with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying this wrong to try to get healing and all that stuff, but I ain't chasing that stuff because I know that there will come a place where they, I ain't getting sick. And so that reminds me of the, of the endurance that I should have. Or you could just complain about being sick, go to the doctors, complain about what, that they don't know what's going on, complain about the over-the-counter medicine, complain about whoever you hung around that coughed on you. Man, what difference does it make? It's a circumstance that God sovereignly allowed. Instead of complaining, why don't you meditate on, Lord, one day, I'm not going to be, just, just meditate on let the Lord remind you where you're going. You're not sick because he's mad or because somebody, he's telling you, hey, remember, you're coming with me. All that's done. Remember Revelation 21? The former things have passed away. That's what I look to. That's what we should look to, those things. So.
All right, there are a few more questions. Uh, that's a ref? No, we're, we're only going to ask one one question. So. I got that from the three amigos. I can't help it. Yeah. Um, Del Guapo. <laughs> and that question is, how do we confirm what is deemed in Scripture as descriptive versus commandment? That's a whole sermon coming up. That's a whole sermon. But some of it is like, listen, here's the thing. Scripture is not unclear in what it commands. There's a difference between reading a story in the Old Testament or Acts or, or the Gospels. That's a story that God is describing. So the way, this is going to be a sermon, but you got to start with what does the Bible command? And then you can look at what does it describe, right? I'm not saying there's not a place for things that the Bible describes and pursuing them, but it's like not a command. But this is this complicated to answer in a question. It's going to be a whole sermon. It's a, it's, it's a whole sermon that's coming in December. So I, I'll get to it. But, yeah, I think, I think I'll just from the basics, just look at um, when the Bible says, like, all, all the fruits of the Spirit. Look at, start, like, what are the fruits of the Spirit? What are the fruits of the flesh? Galatians 5. Look at Colossians 3, Ephesians 4. You know, um, look at all the places where God is commanding, like, Put to death this. Look at look for that language. Make every effort. Second Peter one five through seven. Right. Well, looking for that language. Those are commands. Ephesians six. Put on the armor of God. What does that mean? Look up. What does it mean to put on? What does it mean to do? Look up. Those are commands. And there's a lot of stuff that the Bible just describes. And I think more, especially when it comes to the Spirit, people be chasing with the Bible. Look, look at this verse right here. Yeah, that verse says that. I, I watched this video of this pastor in in Africa that believed that the body, that he could walk on water like Jesus because Jesus did it. This is not, I'm not, you can't make this stuff up. This is how people be. This is why you shouldn't elevate things, right? <laughs> this dude was like, he's walking on water, and it was in Africa. In Africa, they got crocodiles. This dude walked on water, and within 10 seconds, help! And he got, he got killed. That crocodile was like, hey, keep applying that verse that way, bro. Why don't the rest of y'all come on in? He went the wrong way. Start right there. It's like, listen, there are things that the Bible describes, and it's like, if that's what you have to use to do what you're doing, then I think that's a, that's a real problem. Like, don't show me a story and say, look, we're allowed. It's like, that's not what the Bible's telling. I want to do what the Bible tells me to do first, and then, if, and then I'll look at other things. So, but it's a whole sermon. That's definitely coming in December. That's definitely coming. Well, for the sake of time, that was, that was the last question. All right. Let's remind ourselves of the main thing, the foundation of us being here, the foundation of you tolerating me teaching, the foundation of us singing, the foundation of us being together is because of this thing right here. This is a reminder, and this is for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And we're not saying that to be selfish or judgmental. God said this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul said in Corinthians, that people who take this without faith in the Lord bring upon judgment on themselves. So if you're not a believer, we're glad you're here. This would be the only part of the service that we'd ask you to refrain from participating in because this is about remembering Jesus, remembering that his body was broken on the cross for our sins, remembering that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So we do this every Sunday as a reminder. So if I'm all over the place and forget the main thing, this brings us back to the reason. The real reason we gather is not because we're the rock, not to hear me, not to sing, to, but because of this.
We gather together because we believe and we remind ourselves week in and week out that Jesus' body was broken on the cross for us. So let's eat this together. And we remind ourselves that his blood was shed. Let's drink this together. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of the cross. But thank you that we also have the phenomenon of the resurrection. Because if Jesus had died, he would be no different than anyone else. But he's the only one who brought himself back from the dead. And that's good enough for me. So, Lord, I, you know, there's so many schemes of the devil. There's so much happening. We're easily swayed, deceived. We're trying to honor you, Lord, and sometimes we lose focus. We lose track. We get caught in habits and patterns. We all have them. I have them. We all have them. But, Lord, you continually remind us through your word and you're gracious towards us. So, Father, may today, even though all questions weren't answered, some things will hopefully be said in the sermon next week and so forth and the, the sermons that are subsequent to that one. But, Father, I just pray that you would help us, those of us whom you want to, to just to burn in their hearts, burn it in their hearts, Lord. Help us to not be those who worship you in vain because we elevate our, our desires to, to doctrines. Help us to not worship you in vain because we, we fail to see that our circumstances often, re they reveal our sin rather than cause us to sin. Help us to grow in that area, Lord. Help us to stop making excuses for the things we do and just embrace the forgiveness that comes with you. We all, from me on down, have multiple areas to grow in. You're not mad at us or ashamed of us. You saved us knowing who we are. But help us to be diligent. Help us to be faithful to remember the things we're supposed to remember. Help us to not be a church that still needs the basic principles that are on milk and not solid food because that doesn't honor you to be that. It honors us to put away the elementary doctrines of Christ and to move on to deeper things. You gave us deep theology in our last series. Please don't, help, please don't let us go back to the basic principles. Even though we have to cover some of, some of those now, help us to continue to grow, Lord, and give us a conviction to honor you. That conviction can't come from me. I can say everything. They can agree with all of it. They can laugh at what's laughable. They can be. They can mm at what matters. But Lord, only you can give them conviction. So Lord, give them conviction. The one thing I can't do is that. And in the meantime, help us to continue to trust and. And lastly, Lord, and I know this is just probably for me. Please let the commanders beat the because I'm tired of losing. We lost last week to the to the Giants, and so I just would like us to win today for your glory and all good. I declare all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.